man out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone And the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell The cook in the lunch room ready to sell Hello everyone, my name is Lainey Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. New York City public schools will reopen a week from this Monday on September 13th. Already across the nation, we've seen sharp increases in COVID infection rates among children, and many schools that have opened have already closed and instituted remote learning. There are also bitter battles occurring in many states over whether mask wearing should be required, with groups of parents protesting and in some instances attacking school board members and administrators who are calling for mandatory masks in schools. Thankfully, here in New York City, masking will be required, but there are other questions about whether the health and safety protocols will be strong enough. Last Monday, the DOE released its reopening plan and on Wednesday, the City Council held joint hearings of the Education and Health Committees. DOE officials testified, including Chancellor Porter and Dr. Dave Chokshi, New York City Health Commissioner. Today, we have Council Member Mark Levine, Chair of the Council Health Committee, to talk about the DOE's plan and the hearings. Thanks so much for joining us today, Council Member Levine, during this busy holiday weekend. How are you today? Leonie, thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk about this extremely important topic. So can we go through the elements of the DOE's plan one by one and what they said? Absolutely. Okay, first of all is the issue of masking. Now, thankfully DOE will be requiring universal masking, but there's some discussion about the effectiveness of cloth masks. At the hearings on Wednesday, you asked city officials about whether DOE would provide high quality surgical masks to staff and students. What did they say at the hearings about this and did their answer satisfy you? And Leonie, I, I'm excited to focus on that specific question. If it's okay, uh, I'd love just to give a bit of an overview on where we are in our sure. battle against Delta citywide now to kind of frame the context. Uh, the sure. truth is that we are still in the grips of a very difficult battle with this variant. We saw rapid increase in every measure we have over the course of the summer, uh, cases, hospitalizations, unfortunately, even fatalities. And uh, we have peaks now at about a uh, little over 1,800 cases per day newly reported, which is, uh, it's, it has plateaued in the last few weeks, but that is plateaued at, at an extremely high level. And uh, what, what is different in this case from other times where we've come off the peak is that we just have not seen a, a rapid decline in cases. And that, that, that's an indication that the threat is still quite present because of the contagiousness of Delta, because um, of the slow pace of vaccination, uh, and probably because uh, immunity uh, may be wearing off for people who were vaccinated earlier in the vaccination campaign. Um, and coming into the fall, we have people coming back from vacation from all over the country and beyond. Um, we have cooler weather, which itself probably 
uh, is a better environment for the for the virus to to spread, but also uh, means people, as opposed to socializing outdoors, are more likely to be indoors, which we know is is uh, also makes it easier for the virus to spread. So for all these reasons, we have to assume that we have an extremely challenging few months ahead in our battle against this virus. Uh, I, I, I don't want people to think that because we have had uh, a, a respite in the last few weeks because of uh, the plateauing and the, the pause and the increase that we're out of the woods. Uh, we, we really are not, and we have to plan for a difficult fall. And I, I know you know that, and that's why you're devoting your show to this topic. We have to do everything we can to protect schools. And I appreciate Absolutely. the opportunity. I know you agree with that, and I appreciate the opportunity to go policy by policy through the various strategies. Um, and I know we're going to get them, but we have we have to push vaccination, ventilation, masking, social distancing, testing. And I, I know we're going to dive into each of them. And uh, you opened up with the question about masking, which is really important because uh, the contagiousness of Delta has really raised the stakes on masks. First, because while people who are vaccinated are um, far better protected than uh, people who are unvaccinated, there, there is still a chance that someone who's vaccinated can get the virus and can pass it on. Again, your odds are much better than if you're unvaccinated, but it does mean that um, uh, in, in, in indoor settings, uh, people who are vaccinated are advised to wear masks. Unfortunately, that is not a rule in New York City. I've uh, been pushing very hard for the mayor to uh, mandate mask usage in indoor settings like supermarkets, for example. That has not happened yet. Um, thankfully, that will be required in the school environment. Secondly, the contagiousness of Delta means that we really need to pay attention to what kind of masks we're wearing. And any face covering is better than no face covering. Uh, but there's a great difference between a cloth mask uh, at the low end, uh, what, what you might call a, a service mask or, or surgical mask, which is kind of the, the cobalt blue mask that, that people wear commonly, which is uh, the next step up. And, and the kind of more robust protection that you get from, uh, sorry to use all the initials, but uh, a KF94, a KN95, et cetera, these are Typically, um, these are white masks that um, <clears throat> are a much thicker filter. Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Loni. They are a much thicker filter and, and offer much better protection. As the numbers imply, uh, a KF94 would, would filter out 94% of the unwanted particles. Uh, KN95 would filter out 95%. I think it's important that this be the standard in schools. These more intense levels of filtration that you get from the mask I just mentioned. Now, those masks are a little harder to come by. They're a little more expensive. And they're also harder to find in smaller kind of miniature sizes for, for little kids. So for those reasons, I really think that the school system should provide those kinds of masks. Again, things like the KF94s to families for free. And, and also secure them in smaller sizes where appropriate. And I did ask the administration that question directly as, as you commented. And what they said was that they have 
a supply of those kinds of masks in schools. But what I, I couldn't really pin them down in is the number. We need millions of those masks. Um, and it's not My clear to me. My impression of their response was that um, they were going to make the higher quality masks available to staff and not to students. Um, that was my impression from what they said. Um, well, we should, we should true, probably review the tapes, but that would be unacceptable. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, if that's true, assuming that's the case, would your advice to parents be that they try to obtain these masks on their own? I mean, I know it could be difficult and possibly even expensive, but is, would that be your advice? My advice is that students in classrooms should wear the higher quality masks. And I will continue to push for this, the schools to provide that in the quantities uh -huh. that we need. But absent that, yes. Uh, now you can double mask as well, which in a pinch uh, uh, is probably an acceptable alternative. For kids though, uh -huh. you know, that's, that's a lot to ask. Um, but uh, I've even talked to epidemiologists who, who, if they didn't have another alternative uh, at their fingertips, double mask, and, and they feel fairly comfortable with that. So um, really the, mo the most important thing, and this is a challenge for kids, is the fit. Because you could have the highest quality filtration, but if you have uh, significant gaps around the edges of the mask, well, obviously that's not going to work. So probably the most important thing is fit. And it, it is worth working with your child to explain to them uh, you know, how to put on the mask and to make sure they have a good fit. Uh, and the, the good thing about double masking is you're more likely to, to cover up any gaps. So, uh, but, but yes, I would advise parents to take masking very seriously, uh, and to secure a higher quality if they can, but we're going to keep pushing for the schools to provide those. So now let's get to the issue of ventilation, which also came up at the hearings. And I recently learned you went on a tour. Um, of the safety measures at Murray Bertram High School yes. in Manhattan with school facility officials. What's your impression of whether ventilation in schools will be sufficient? This is a huge question. Actually, even more than we understood a year ago. Because you remember back then we were focusing a lot on surface transmission. And while you know, continuing to sanitize is still important. It just doesn't seem like that's what's driving the spread. Um, back back in the in the early days, we, people were washing their produce. We were so concerned about surface transmission, and that that really uh, is unwarranted at this point. But but we do now understand uh, that this is an airborne disease, and that the stakes are really high to ensure good airflow and filtration in any enclosed space, uh, especially including schools. And so you and others have been right to focus on um, airflow and filtration. Those, those are two different things. And I was able to tour the Murray Bertram campus with uh, Chancellor Porter uh, before our hearing on Wednesday. This is um, a large building downtown uh, close to City Hall that was built in the 70s when, when, when the architectural aesthetic was fortress, uh, for better, or for worse. Um, but, you know, it is newer than most buildings in the system. And it has a, uh, a centralized HVAC system, which is a luxury that most school buildings don't have. I mean, we, we've been fighting even to get window 
air conditioning units uh, in, in a lot of older, older schools. Um, they, they, they have been able to achieve really high levels of, of airflow. Um, as, as you know, it's worth explaining. Um, there's a metric uh, ACH, uh, which is uh, airflow change per hour, which is just quite simply how much the air cycles in and out of a space over the hour. Uh, that's a really important measure for COVID safety. And uh, you have a minimum standard uh, that experts have identified of, of, of about five to six uh, uh, airflow exchanges per hour. And uh, largely because they have a centralized HVAC system in, in the Murray Bertram campus, they have achieved uh, over 20 per hour in, in a lot of spaces. Um, now, uh, without that, it's tougher. Uh, windows and any direct uh, fresh air coming in uh, are extremely helpful and um, make it possible to achieve that kind of good airflow. Although um, uh, it is somewhat weather dependent and um, uh, a day with a lot of wind, you're gonna get much higher exchange rates. Again, if you're replying, if you're relying on the outside air. Now you can compensate for that somewhat by having uh, window mounted fan units to ensure that even if there's not a, a good breeze outside, you're getting good air exchange. Um, but the question of filtration uh, is separate from airflow. And, uh, and that's also an important consideration. Uh, and the, the spaces that we toured and Murray Bertram had um, multiple air filtration devices uh, per space in, in the cafeteria. They had a very, very large unit, which uh, I would say comparable to like maybe a, a washing machine size. And then the, uh, the, the classrooms had um, smaller uh, units, which would be comparable to, uh, I don't know, like uh, maybe a small trash can. And, uh, and th those are extremely important at the Murray Bertram campus because they have a centralized system. We actually went up to the, uh, the, the, uh, the mechanical space at the top of the building and looked at uh, the large uh, inflow spaces they have uh, on the roof where they've added filters as well. Um, so they've really got multiple lines of defense there. And, you know, with the caveat that I'm, I'm certainly not an engineer, it appeared to be a pretty good setup, but that definitely is not the setup that we have in every school. And the typical school without HVAC is going to rely much, much more on windows and portable filtration units. And so, so the, the stakes are raised uh, in such places. Uh, and, and I know there are, uh, uh, there's an intense debate about the quality of the, uh, portable filtration or purification units uh, that you know, perhaps you want to talk about or ask specific questions about. Um, but we want to achieve a HEPA standard and uh, uh, we need to ask really uh, detailed questions about the equipment that they've secured and whether indeed uh, we have achieved that standard. Um, and, and I know you've delved into this. Do, do you want to do you want to get to the question of the mechanical yeah, filtration? I units? mean, right. uh, 
there's two things, as you mentioned. I've learned more about this subject in the last week than I ever hoped to have learned. But yes, it's <laughs> yeah. the, the issue of ventilation is the air exchange. And then there's the issue of air purification. And there's been a lot of talk, uh, articles online, on uh, debates on Twitter about the quality of the IntelliPure devices that DOE purchased for more than $43 million. Um, according to several experts, uh, it's among the noisiest, most expensive, and least effective of air purifiers on the market, uh, mainly because it, is, it does not have HEPA filters, which is the gold standard for um, uh, purifying the air of viruses. Um, yesterday in Gothamist, Dr. Varma, who is the mayor's top COVID advisor, said that he and DOE solely relied on data supplied by the manufacturer for their purchase of these devices, rather than any independent studies or experts to assess how effective they actually are, which is a real concern to those of us who are you know, already skeptical of the kinds of, um, of contracting that DOE does without a lot of independent assessment. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you're right to focus on this. And uh, we, we need to achieve a HEPA standard that has to be non-negotiable. Uh, and I agree with you that there should be some sort of outside independent analysis of these devices uh, beyond the company's own certification. Uh, so I, I, I join you in that call. I'm not in a position myself to, to uh, evaluate uh, the engineering on this, uh, but, but I join you in saying that we need independent uh, review of the, these mechanical devices. And there's still time for that. Um, uh, we, we, we should push for a rapid review next week um, that may either uh, ease our concerns or indicate that we need to do better and upgrade. Well, I'll put links to some of the articles that have questioned the efficacy um, of these uh, IntelliPure air purifiers in the resources section of WBAI and on the podcast as well. This is Leigh Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. I'm talking to my guest, Council Member Mark Levine, Chair of the Council Health Committee about the health and safety protocols in New York City school reopening plan. Now let's talk about vaccines. Um, at the hearings, you were very forthright about the importance of vaccines and their efficacy and safety, which was great. But there was a lot of dissent and disruption in the audience among a group of teachers who oppose mandatory vaccination, which I found very upsetting. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, this, this hearing, uh, which was, uh, such an urgent topic to review the DOE's COVID safety plan was repeatedly and continuously disrupted by uh, activists who oppose vaccines and, uh, and some that oppose masking. And it, it was a, a, a sobering reminder, uh, Leone, that the, the fight uh, for science is uh, not only needs to be waged in the deep south and in red states, but here in our city. And it was really disappointing to see that it seems like the core of the group or certainly a significant number are DOE employees and apparently even teachers. Um, 
I, I, I spoke forcefully uh, about the, the, the really non-negotiable need to have a mask mandate uh, and, and a vaccine mandate. I mean, it, it should go without saying, but I'll just remind folks that this is a uh, airborne virus, uh, a respiratory disease uh, that, uh, that is passed because of people breathing and talking and uh, um, otherwise exchanging air. Uh, largely in tight spaces. And uh, for that reason, masks work, period. Masks are an incredibly important tool in our battle against COVID. And um, I'm thankful that outside of the angry protesters, uh, amongst pretty much all stakeholders, the mask mandate has been accepted in New York City. Um, vaccines are also critical uh, and proven now uh, to be enormously safe, safe after hundreds of millions of doses administered in this country, uh, it is arguably the most scrutinized vaccine in, in medical history. And experts have likened it to the level of safety of aspirin. Now, every possible uh, medical treatment has uh, some risk. Uh, taking aspirin has some risk, but the risk is, is minuscule uh, for uh, the vaccine. And it has to be weighed against the risk of being unvaccinated uh, in a country with approaching 700,000 lives lost. So uh, there's just no doubt that vaccination is required. And uh, for people who say, well, if I don't want to get vaccinated, I'm the only one taking the risk. And what does anyone else care? Uh, there are people in the city who can't get vaccinated, children under 12. Uh, mm -hmm. People who are, immuno, who are immunocompromised actually can get vaccinated and should get vaccinated, but they really don't get the protection that um, people with uh, um, fully functioning immune systems get. So, um, and we have now seen that even uh, people who are vaccinated can potentially get the virus, although at much, much, much lower rates, which is why we want every, everyone to get the shot. So um, I firmly endorse uh, vaccine mandates for, for school staff. Um, and honestly think we need to have a discussion about vaccine mandates for students as well, over 12. Um, but uh, one, one issue I was pushing uh, the DOE on is the extent to which vaccination will be offered in school buildings. And uh, I, I pointed out that in past vac vaccine campaigns like uh, for polio, um, vac vaccination in schools was a critical component of the effort. And I think one of the reasons why we were so successful, in fact, New Yorkers who are above <clears throat> a certain age, I don't know, maybe 70 and above, probably have memories of vaccination and polio. This is actually not that distant in history. Mm -hmm. um, the, the DOA informed me, and, and I wasn't aware of this before the hearing. I don't know if they had announced it, but they informed us that they are going to have vaccination offered in school buildings for the first week of school in middle schools and high schools. I think they're they're branding it the Vax to School campaign. So I think that's great. I'd like to see it offered uh, a lot more than just for one week. Um, but I, I welcome that as an important move. Uh, and uh, we'll continue to push for vaccination as much as possible throughout the school year in all school buildings. So the UT announced yesterday that they were asking the Public Employment Relations Board to intervene with DOE because they haven't agreed to allow teachers 
to opt out of vaccination for religious or health reasons. What's your view of that? Well, uh, yes, the, 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 there d- does need to be exemptions uh, for, for medical and religious reasons. I'll, I'll, I'll point out that on the medical front, uh, there are exceedingly few conditions that would lead a doctor to recommend a patient not get vaccinated. Uh, there are conditions, people get confused because there, there are conditions um, that, mean that you will not get as much immune benefit out of a vaccine, such as, for example, uh, someone who's, who's uh, a cancer patient uh, and on, on chemotherapy, uh, someone who's uh, an organ transplant patient who's on medications that, uh, that actually by necessity limits immune response. So for those folks, it's true that they don't get as much benefit from the vaccine. But people are confused. It doesn't mean they shouldn't take the vaccine. In fact, doctors are urging those patients really above all others to get the vaccine and now have been authorized for a third shot. Um, so uh, in terms of the, the patients who, who, for whom vaccination can be harmful, there, there's a very small number of uh, people who have uh, severe allergic reactions to ingredients in the vaccine. But, but now... But now I think a lot of doctors are, are even still just cautioning that they get the vaccine under medical supervision. And it appears that for the second shot, they have much less severe reaction. So uh, obviously consult with your doctor um, and take their guidance. Uh, but um, there, there are very, very few people in New York City whose doctors are advising them not to get the shot. As for religious exemptions, um, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a theologian. Uh, as, as, as a Jewish person, I can say that I'm not aware of anything in Jewish law that would uh, uh, that would re- require someone to avoid the vaccine. But uh, I'll let others speak uh, for other faiths. I, I I absolutely think there needs to be a process for that for religious and medical exemptions. I just want to make sure that it doesn't become. Uh, uh, a, a, a backdoor channel for uh, uh, avoidance of vaccination on mass. Yeah, there was a story in the paper about a pastor in Brooklyn who was offering religious exemptions in return for a donation to his church. Uh, I'm I'm concerned about that sort of thing going on. I know that the Pope has come out strongly for va- vaccination and saying that this is with an evidence of your caring for others and and for the health of of, of uh, children. So I, I can't think of a legitimate religion that would actually exempt someone from vaccination. You, and, and you, you mentioned you, briefly, yeah, go on. Can I just say one thing on the religious uh, front? Um, yeah. I, th- I, 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 I won't make any presumptions. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a more progressive Jew, but I was incredibly inspired by uh, a group of Orthodox rabbis from Queens who put out yeah. uh, a video um, this week uh, that, that really described vaccination as a religious obligation. Uh, and maybe I'll send it to you in case you want to post it. Uh, so uh, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that for the Jewish faith, there's no problem. And, and I am concerned about um, people selling uh, religious dispensations. That's the, exactly the kind of thing that we can't let happen. Right. 
briefly mentioned um, the issue of a vaccine mandate for kids 12 and up. What's holding that up? What's, what, what is the possible objection to mandating vac vaccination for those kids as well? As you point out, or, or as you're aware, we, we do require vaccination for a variety of other vaccines for kids to register in school, uh, most famously uh, measles, mumps, rubella. Um, and those are actually far less controversial, although the MMR has, 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 has an anti-vax movement, but it, it pales in comparison to what we're dealing with now um, for, uh, for the COVID vaccine. Uh, so I, I think there, there are some people who have said that until there is uh, full authorization, not under emergency use for 12 and up, uh, that a mandate would be problematic. And, um, you know, I apologize that I'm not certain about this, but I believe that the current full authorization for the COVID, for the COVID vaccines is for uh, 18 and up. Um, uh, but I, maybe we can try and verify that while we're on air. Uh, but regardless, uh, authorization for younger uh, is expected imminently. And, uh, and that should be resolved soon. Uh, I, 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 I don't, I don't know what, what uh, the, the objections are um, to student vaccination, but uh, the truth is that we're, we're pretty far behind on that. Um, the citywide vaccination rate for age 12 to 17 is, uh, last I checked, is 56% for fully vaccinated. Um, for single shot, I think it's 62%. Uh, but we don't have data for public school kids specifically. And uh, there's, there's anecdotal indication that it might be lower for public school kids uh, when you, when you, uh, when you uh, remove uh, private school from the percentage. What I'm really worried about is the inequality amongst public schools in vaccination rates. And again, we don't have data on this and I would like to, but uh, it seems that a fair estimate is to say that there are some schools, middle and high schools, where 80, 90, even higher percent of kids are vaccinated. Um, and some schools where it's gonna be 25% or less. And uh, that really worries me. Uh, and I think that uh, there needs to be an action plan uh, for schools with lower rates of vaccination to surge resources in. Uh, that, for example, would be the kind of school where I'd want in-person vaccination in the building available all year, uh, not just the first week. Um, and, but but I, I, I do think we need to have a conversation on mandating vaccination, vaccination and, and it sounds like you do too. Uh, the FDA, I just looked it up, granted full approval of Pfizer for people ages eight, 16 and up um, ah, on thank eight, you for in August 24th. So I don't see why at least those kids can't be mandated yes. <laughs> to be vaccined. Correct. Now, Correct. one of the most concerning things I felt about the DOE's plan is the lack of COVID testing. Yes. Um, DOE in, is planning only to test 10% of all all unvaccinated kids whose parents have submitted consent forms and only once every two weeks. This is a big step down from last year when 
20% of all students and staff were tested every week. Moreover, that was before Delta was predominant, which as you point out is much more infectious. And also when there was far more social distancing in our schools because only about 40% or fewer kids were doing in-person learning. In contrast, Los Angeles schools, which is the second largest district in the country, will be testing all students and staff on a weekly basis. Chicago schools will be offering weekly testing also to all students at the staff. At the hearings, I know that the chancellor and Dr. Chakshi were asked about this. Um, did you find their explanations for the reduction in testing convincing? No. I am very concerned. This is actually my number one concern on the school reopening plan, the school COVID safety plan. And I think that there, there's a little bit of confusion about the purpose of testing. And there are really two goals. One is kind of epidemiological, which is to get uh, you know, a mechanism for tracking uh, the spread and to be alerted when uh, we're making progress or, or, um, seeing the increased presence of the virus and potentially even to be able to focus on localized problems. And the, the commissioner makes a pretty persuasive case for a 10% random sample every two weeks being good enough for that kind of epidemiological monitoring. But there is a critical second purpose, which is to stop the spread. And I don't think anyone could seriously say that testing 10% uh, uh, on a voluntary basis only of students, not, 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 faculty, not staff, every two weeks would be enough to have any serious lessening uh, in, in, in the spread. Uh, for that, you need uh, what experts really around the country say, weekly testing of everybody. Um, then you're going to catch a lot of people who may have contracted the virus without knowing it, and you will allow them to begin quarantining before they unwittingly spread it. And that, that's the basic goal of, of regular testing on a large scale. Um, this is a big logistical undertaking. I don't minimize that. Uh, and, uh, and, and it costs money. Um, and what, what LA has done is they have reserved uh, a huge amount of lab resources uh, uh, for some reason up in Northern California and so they now have uh, a system where they have uh, two planes that they have contracted to fly uh, out of LAX every day uh, to take samples up to the lab in Northern California. And they have a huge logistical operation to bring uh, samples from all over the school system twice a day to the airport. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on that. And they are... Um, sort of assuming that that um, there'll be federal reimbursement. Uh, but but to me, the stakes are high enough to warrant. Yeah, actually saying that they will reimburse 100% of the cost of COVID testing and staffing for all schools that, that request that. Well, then, well, then that, that thank you. I, I hadn't seen that. And that, that, I mean, that just makes the case uh, even more compelling that the city needs to do it. Um, you know, it, it, staffing is a challenge, but they could contract uh, with staff. We, we also have 
you know, a large test and trace core, some of which can be repositioned to that. Um, I believe they're contracting with a thousand staff uh, to do the uh, one week vaccination drive. So they, they can do it. Um, this, this really needs to happen. Uh, and other, other parts of the, city, of the country are doing it. Other parts of the world are doing it. And uh, I, I also uh, want to see us use uh, rapid self-testing as a, uh, as a tool. What they're doing in LA is um, PCR testing. This is the gold standard. That's why they have to have an airplane to fly it up to a lab. I mean, you really get the most accurate read there. But there's an important role for rapid, what they call antigen testing, uh, as opposed to molecular testing, which is the, the PCR. Um, the, the, the rapid tests are really good at detecting the, the contagiousness. Um, they, they might miss it um, early on in the infection when you're less likely to be contagious and might miss it later on, again, when you're less likely to be contagious. But they're very good at catching uh, positive cases during those days when you are infectious. Um, and, uh, and they're being used effectively uh, around the world. Uh, Israel started school on Wednesday, and they sent home self-test kits before the first day of school to all two and a half million kids. And uh, the idea was that, you know, they'd make sure that no one walked in to school on the first day uh, with the uh, COVID positive and or at least infectious. And uh, it worked extremely well. And we need to do that here. I, I, I truly believe that we should be the city should be securing millions of, of self-test kits. Um, you know, you can get these in a drugstore for uh, typically they retail the COVID Binax now. Uh, you get two kits for 24 bucks, but the city could use its purchasing power and I'm sure the cost would come down. Um, uh, I, I'd like, I, by the way, would like to see the city do this uh, even beyond schools. Um, uh, Washington DC makes uh, free, free COVID test kits available uh, in libraries, for example. Uh, the idea that we have to send people to a COVID test site and wait in line uh, is to me uh, antiquated uh, with, with so many other alternatives. But getting back to schools, um, so th this could be used not just as a pre-first day of school universal uh, screen, but it could be used in important ways throughout the school year. For example, um, if a child tests positive in a classroom, uh, you could send uh, uh, 10 COVID self-test kits home with every family and tell them, you know, test every day. And as long as you're negative, you can come in that day. Uh, this, this is a proposal um, that has been um, suggested by Dr. Michael Mina, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, Leonie. Uh, and and, and he, he and I are scheduled to speak. I hope we'll speak next week. So I'm not quite up to speed on his proposal here. But it does offer, I think, effective ways to bring kids back into the class more quickly in, ca in case of quarantine, quarantine. And it's just not clear to me that the city has made any effort to purchase large quantities of rapid self-test kits. And, and, and uh, the numbers are big. I'd like to see us buy a few million. And I think it would be a game change for schools. 
Right. This is something that Dr. Ashish Jha, who's also the, the Dean of the Brown University uh, School of Public Health has said, could be done in schools, the rapid test to minimize the disruption to have to send necessarily send kids home or quarantine right. them in case of, of, of an infection in a class. Um, another issue with testing um, is that the DOE's protocols don't require any quarantining or even testing of vaccinated students or staff, even after exposure. And yet with Delta, as you know, breakthrough infections are on the rise. And in the first week of August in New York City, there were nearly 3,000 breakthrough infections and more than 100 hospitalizations. Many times that number were probably asymptomatic and able to transmit the virus, but were not tested. So um, I'm not clear on why vaccinated students and staff are, are exempting, exempted from testing and also quarantining. I do agree with you on that, but I do want to make I, I, I want to make the broader point that yeah. um, while we talk about breakthrough infections, infections which which are occurring, that um, your odds are vastly improved with vaccination. Uh, right. The, the if I'm recalling correctly, I think you are uh, one eighth as likely to get infected if you're vaccinated, and one eleventh as likely to wind up in the hospital based on New York City's data in the last few weeks. Uh, I may be off slightly from that, but that's roughly uh, the scale of benefit that you get. But that doesn't mean that you cannot get the virus if you've been infected. And it does appear particularly uh, that uh, as you're farther out from your uh, second shot, that you're more likely to be vulnerable to a reinfection or to a, to a, a so-called breakthrough case. So that's why we need to have people who are vaccinated still continue to test even you know adults listening to you uh if you have if you know you've been exposed to someone with the virus or if you simply have covid like symptoms you should get tested and that that also should apply in school communities uh and it's why um i think that i believe like you do that uh, even people who are vaccinated adults and students should get tested if there's a known exposure. Uh, the only argument maybe is, is resource shortage, but again, uh, LA is moving uh, mountains to get uh, the adequate resources and, and New York City does too. So absolutely, I think uh, the testing requirements should apply to everyone, students, adults, vaccinated, unvaccinated, everybody. Now let's talk about another controversial subject, social distancing. The DOE has repeatedly claimed that the majority of schools will be able to provide three feet of social distancing, though many principals and the head of the principals union, Mark Canizaro, disputes this and says that most schools are just simply too overcrowded. The DOE actually changed its formula midway to, um, that determines how the spacing would be computed to require less square footage per student than they usually originally calculated and also have been assuming that principal's offices and other administrative rooms could be used as classrooms, which I think is highly unrealistic. What's your view about how much social distancing there will be in schools next year? And what about those 50 or so most overcrowded schools where even DOE admits there can't be social distancing? What should be done in those schools? Yes. Um, uh... Well, so so there, there's the classroom challenge, there's the lunch challenge, uh, mm -hmm. which, which each need different strategies. Uh, I, I'm particularly concerned about lunch because 
both because people tend to sit closer together and because you take your mask off uh, right. to eat and drink and, and uh, realistically, uh, you're going to be talking a lot, uh, which, which is, is um, higher risk for COVID spread. So uh, lunch is a particularly uh, vexing problem. And there, uh, we just have to um, really push to either stagger uh, the schedule, uh, um, have more people eat lunch outside, maybe have some, some lunch in classrooms. Uh, but, you know, as for rooms where uh, you can't maintain three foot distance, uh, yes, that, that's very worrisome. Um, in the Murray Bertram uh, campus, which I toured on Wednesday, they, um, they, they have said that they can meet. I was in a classroom with 30 seats and they, they said they met the three foot uh, distance for sit for seating. Um, but I, I know that's not going to be possible, uh, in, in every room. Uh, I want to, I want to thank you, uh, Leone, for your decades long fight to reduce class size, which is the ultimate solution here. Um, as an aside, uh, I started my career way back when as a, uh, ma a bilingual math and science teacher in the South Bronx in district seven, I, I taught in junior high school, 149. I had 36 kids per class um, and there's no way I could give them the same caliber education I would have been able to with a smaller class size. So little digression there to thank you and class size matters for your decades of advocacy. Um, but in, in the COVID context, uh, it's extremely important. So um, it does appear that there's a small number of schools where this is a huge problem and there's gotta be some sort of solution uh, either annexes or swing space or something. Um, uh, and I, I would actually love to hear from you what you think the best way to do it is, but I'm very worried about overcrowded classrooms and feel that we have to find a, a solution uh, for those particular schools. So we put out recommendations way back when last year that the DOE should be looking at leasing or purchasing some of the many parochial schools that have closed in the last right. two years as well as considering moving out some of the pre-K classes in elementary schools that they have put in with the expansion of pre-K, especially because so many community-based organizations have space for more pre-K and have been begging for more pre-K students because they say that with the expansion of UPK, they've lost a lot of their students in the community because DOE has pushed them into uh, right. elementary schools, right. many of yeah. which are already overcrowded. And we found that, in fact, in next fall, I think they're expanding 3K in something like 35 elementary schools, where which are already over 100% utilized. So the DOE has, and they've continued to co-locate more schools for the last year and a half, which creates more overcrowding. So they really have not focused on this at all. Um, it's a great disappointment to us that they don't seem to take this, this issue seriously. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, now that we're on the subject of class size and social distancing, uh, your view of the bill that council member Traeger has introduced to that would lower the legal capacity of classrooms to be phased in starting the fall of 2022. That would not help us this year, but would help us in the future, both in terms of health and safety if there are pandemics that are still going on or new ones, and also for the issue of reducing class size and providing a more quality education to kids. Uh, do you have a position on this bill? Well, I 
first, let me just say that Mark Traeger has been an amazing chair of the education committee for the last four years uh, and particularly throughout the pandemic. And he's uh, a very close friend and we partner, uh, uh, the two Marks partner uh, on, on, on so many fronts related to education and, and health. And uh, I really ap applaud him for fighting on behalf of this. And I absolutely support uh, uh, reduction of class size. I, I just wanna make sure we have the physical capacity to do that uh, by 2024. And, and actually maybe you and I can even connect on that offline. Um, I, I just, I, I don't know what happens if you have the law and no extra space. So uh, that's the one thing I need to work out, but I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely on board with this goal. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you about it. The problem is it's a chicken and egg issue, of course. If you, there's no push to reduce class size, there's no impetus on the part of the DOE to, to find the space to do so. Right. So you have to figure out, you know, what what is going to be a sufficient um, 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 spark and push and advocacy to get the city to do what they should have done long ago anyway. So I'd, I'd love to talk to you more about that. Uh, but let's turn to another issue, which perhaps there's the most parent activism about, um, and it's under, totally understandable. Um, many parents are pushing for remote option for their kids next this fall, which would also help allow for more social distancing because there'd be fewer kids in school. Um, and there's a growing number of elected officials and other organizations that are supporting this option. Um, as you know, uh, many of the other large districts around the country, including Los Angeles, um, are, are offering a remote option to parents. What's your uh, view of this? Well, first, uh, we have to make sure that every single child who's medically fragile in any way uh, gets a remote option. The, the DOE has outlined a number of, they listed uh, 15 or 20 specific medical conditions um, where an exemption would be, would be provided automatically, but there certainly are going to be other kids who don't, who aren't uh, identified in that list, whose condition is not identified in that list. And um, uh, I actually uh, hosted uh, or joined a Congress member, uh, Dano Espaillat, yesterday in a press conference, making a number of, of demands related to COVID school safety. And one of which is that there has to be an independent review uh, so that uh, families have a chance for appeal if they're not, if their request for uh, medical exemption is not granted. So I'm, I'm all in on ensuring that every child who's vulnerable have a remote option. As for uh, sort of a mass remote option, um, I, what I'm struggling with here is the city's capacity to deliver uh, both a quality remote and quality in-person option um, mm -hmm. if, it's, if, it's, if it's a mass scale uh, remote uh, program uh, without uh, adequate staffing and other resources um, because, you know, p potentially you need uh, a, a massive increase in staff. To do it right, you certainly do uh, because, um, you know, it might not be a, a one-for-one -one doubling of staff, but, uh, you know, in essence, you need one person who's for the in-person class and one person for the distance class 
uh, I don't think anyone would tolerate having hundreds of kids per per Zoom session. Uh, so that that's the only thing I'm struggling with. I, I would love your thoughts on, on that and whether you think we're ready to do that. Any district in the country has the capacity, given our size, to have a remote option. New York City does. And since most other large districts are doing it, I don't see why we couldn't have a centrally administered, organized program. And that would also allow teachers who are immune compromised and have serious health conditions that might, um, you know, um, make them worried about being going to uh, teaching in person might be able to volunteer for those positions. So. I am very sympathetic to parents who are very concerned, either that their kids have conditions, but also other members in their family might have um, conditions that make them more vulnerable to COVID. So as far as I know, DOE is not given ex uh, um, exemptions to students whose families have those conditions as well. So that's one of my and, concerns. And, and they absolutely should, uh, uh, without a doubt. Um, and. You know the schools better than almost anybody I know, so your your assurance that we can handle the largest scale uh, uh, remote option uh, uh, means a lot to me. Uh, it's so it's it's really great to hear that perspective. Well, thank you, thank you so much for for your words and for your attention to this issue and your advocacy for the health and safety of all New Yorkers, especially their kids at this time. Um, I know that I wanted to congratulate you. You won the primary for Manhattan Borough <laughs> President. Yes. Almost certainly will be our next borough president. And so I would love to have you on um, later in the year to talk about what some of your plans are for that post in terms of education, but also to check back with you when we see how the schools are doing in terms of health and safety as well. Would you be able to come on later I in the year? Would you think? I, I would love that, Leone, to talk about you know, a broader agenda for schools and for the borough of Manhattan. Uh, I, I would love that and, and to revisit uh, the ongoing pandemic challenge. I'm, I'm still health chair until the end of December. So uh, kind of wearing multiple hats right now. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I am so grateful for your leadership on behalf of schools for so many years. And um, really thank you for everything you've done and continue to do. Well, thank, thank you as well um, for being here today and for your advocacy for health and safety. Our show, Talk Out of School, is available as a podcast if you missed the live version. If you hear it through Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or as a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. We really need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that does not run ads. If you appreciate what you've heard on this show, if you appreciate um, um, WBAI, please uh, consider contributing. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe. Thanks so much for listening. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule.